Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Can I get close to you people? Are you okay with it? Can I break a little bit of the, the barrier? So uh, it's a wonderful sanctuary. It's such an intimate uh, and beautiful space, and you're such beautiful people. What a remarkable gathering. I want to be a little bit closer to you. So uh, I want to start with the great blessing of what it is to lead the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. How many of you know the RAC? How many of you have never heard of the RAC? Great. How many of you know why there is a RAC in Washington? And if you were with me last night, you don't get to raise your hand. Were you with me last night? Uh, oh, but you know the origin story? Do you know? Oh, all right. Okay. It's a. Oh my God. Where I'm in. I love. So did you grow up in Lindbrook? Long Island? In Rockville Center. And who is your son? Jeff Mandel. Jeff Mandel. What did he do at the RAC? Yeah, look, we all work for David. I still work for David. <laughs> so Rabbi David Saperstein, who was the um, director of the RAC for 40 years, 40 years, a remarkable man. When David started at the RAC, it was just him and an assistant. We now have 31 staff. We're in Washington, but we also have offices in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, and New York, soon to have an office in Cincinnati, and maybe someday right here in Phoenix. We'll see. We'll talk. Um, Rabbi Saperstein, some of you may know, uh, was uh, appointed by President Obama two years ago to be the ambassador at large for international religious freedom. So Rabbi Saperstein travels uh, across the world uh, into the mo- some of those dangerous places to fight for American values around religious freedom uh, to protect repressed and oppressed religious minorities. Um, and I share that story because Uh, As a parenthetical side note, David has taught us many things, not only that we should be pluralistic in our approach to social justice as Jews, but that we have to be rigorously, not just nonpartisan, but that we have to reach out aggressively and proactively to people who we disagree with on many things, but create relationships and find common ground in order to make the world a better place. So I say that because when Rabbi Saperstein was nominated by President Obama, it was at a time when the United States Senate was not doing anything. Right? Everything was getting stuck because there was this battle between the Senate and the president. David was confirmed by an overwhelming majority in the United States Senate, and he was confirmed with votes by senators whose names you wouldn't be surprised at, like Schumer and Feinstein, but also Rubio and Cruz. Because David spent his entire career in Washington creating relationships across lines, bringing to people together around shared values, and modeling for us what it is to be a religious movement. And he would remind us, if you were here, by the way, that every major piece of civil rights legislation in American history was passed by bipartisan majorities. The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, 
the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, all passed by bipartisan majority. So though we get stuck at historical moments like the one that we're in, where it feels hopelessly polarized and partisan, we should take the long view of American history and be inspired by leadership like David's. Uh, tough act to follow, but I'm doing my best. So I want to uh, share a couple of other reflections about the Religious Action Center. Uh, your Religious Action Center. How many of you are for Tem Temple Salome, uh, Solel? How many of you from other congregations who are visiting? Oh, wonderful. How many, are all, people, how many of you belong to a Reformed congregation? Okay, so for those of you who belong to a Reformed congregation, we can all, the rack belongs to everybody, but most of all, it belongs to the Reform movement. And for a moment, be proud that we have a religious action center, what Rabbi Linder described, the crown and the jewel, the jewel and the crown of Reformed Judaism. So the origin story. How many of you ever heard of a wonderful Jewish leader and philanthropist named Kivi Kaplan? Anyway, Kivi Kaplan? Great, okay. Nice to have a, a few people who know the name. Kivi was a major American philanthropist. He was a leader of our reform movement. He was on the board of our reform movement. And when he was a young uh, newlywed, he brought his wife, Emily, for their honeymoon in Florida. And he decided to take her out for dinner in a country club. And their taxi pulled up to this country club. And they got out, and there was a sign. No Jews, no dogs. Kivy was shocked, and he turned to the black taxi driver who had dropped them off and asked, you know, is this common around here? To which the driver said, they don't even bother with us. Kivy understood no Jews, no dogs, no blacks. We are all in this together. And he challenged the reform movement. As a result of that experience, he bought the embassy building that now houses the Religious Action Center in DuPont Circle, in the heart of Washington, in the center of DC, and donated it to the reform movement and challenged us and said, we need to be at the center of the civil rights movement in America. We need to be a hub of Jewish social justice. And before he had the vision to do it, there, 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 weren't, there was nothing like this in Washington. So it was that as part of the mission, and by the way, Kivi also wound up being the last white Jewish president of the NAACP. Little known tidbit. And when I speak to NAACP, which we have a very strong partnership with the NAACP in hundreds of local chapters and local congregations. We do nonpartisan election protection work with NAACP and other racial justice work. Whenever I speak to audiences, I tell that story and they're shocked. Current leaders of the NAACP and, and members have no idea that they were at one point led by a white Jewish guy from Boston named Kaplan. So it was when he donated the rack so that we would be at the center of the civil rights movement Dr. King and his allies in the civil rights movement, they didn't have an office in Washington. So when Dr. King came to Washington, he would meet at the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. In fact, if you go to the King, uh, the, the museum in Atlanta that has the, the uh, Museum for Civil and Human Rights, how many of you have been there? It's a beautiful museum. And they have a re reproduction of Dr. King's study. And you will see in his study the Gates of Prayer, the Reform Movement's prayer book, and you will see uh, the, um, a book by Al Vorspan, 
my predecessor is the vice president of the ORJ on Judaism and social justice. You'll see Heschel's book, The Prophets, because he sat with reformed Jewish leaders at the Religious Action Center strategizing about the civil rights movement. And so it was the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, which is the umbrella organization of all the different civil rights groups, which to this day is the most powerful and oldest civil rights coalition in American history, of which I have the honor to have a seat on the executive committee on the board, met in our offices because Kivi and the reform movement opened it up to the leadership conference. And so it is that when I go to work every day, I sit at my desk and I look across the hall and there is a bronze plaque. And on that plaque it is written, it was in this room that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was drafted and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was written. What an incredible, remarkable legacy for us as reformed Jews. The mobilization for Soviet Jewry was planned in that room and the Dalai Lama at his one and only Passover Seder in his life happened in our conference room. The Dalai Lama called Rabbi Saperstein and said, because we are wrestling with what it's going to mean to be a diaspora community, we want to learn from the Jewish community how one abides and endures despite being dispersed and uh, exiled as Jews have done for 2,000 years before the state of Israel. And so the Dalai Lama, David invited the Dalai Lama to come to the rack to meet with Jewish leaders and to experience a Passover Seder, which of course tells the story of bondage and redemption and renewal. What an incredible story. So uh, Rabbi Saperstein, you know, he was nominated. It took a year for the Senate to confirm him. All of a sudden they confirmed him. And with almost no notice, uh, Rabbi Rick Jacobs and the board of the URJ tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you follow David Saperstein? And I thought, what schmuck takes a job where the guy before you has been for 40 years? But, you know, this is an incredible opportunity to steward this legacy. So I get to my office. I arrive on the first day. I see this plaque. I take a deep breath and I go, okay, where do I start? And the phone rings. It's from a minister who leads a group called Faith and Politics. And he says, Rabbi, it's Reverend such and such. Faith and Politics is organizing a 50th anniversary march to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday. And Congressman Lewis will be leading a delegation. And because of the historic role the reform movement played in the Religious Action Center, we want you to help lead the delegation. And I thought, oh, I see, because Saperstein's gone. I guess this is, you know, so I thought, all right, well, this is, this'll be, you know, my entree into all of this. Who knew when I fly down to Birmingham, which is where we met the night before the march, when we bust down to Selma, I show up to this hotel in Birmingham and there's hundreds and hundreds of people. The goal of faith and politics is to bring together Republicans and Democrats to march with Congressman Lewis to have a bipartisan show of commitment to our investment in civil rights in American history. So there were leaders, uh, the, the, um, Kevin McCarthy, who's the, the um, majority leader in the House, um, Speaker Pelosi, who was at the, the time the minority leader, and all of their minions behind them all showed up for this thing. Hundreds of people there. Turned out the president was coming, and the next day he was going to kind of march across the bridge. You may have seen the picture of Obama. So, you know, I was kind of, nobody knew who I was. I'm kind of trying to just hide in the back, not knowing anybody. I'm new to the job. And everybody assembles in the grand ballroom, which is packed to the gills for the opening dinner to welcome everyone and celebrate our being in Selma. And the organizer comes and finds me and says, Rabbi, we realized it's Shabbat, it's Friday night. Why don't you open up with a blessing? And I thought to myself, this is Reverend Doug Tanner, who's a great guy. I said, Reverend Tanner, 
I've just started my job three seconds ago. I don't know a single person in this room. They don't know who I am. I don't think I'm the right person. He said, no, no, Rabbi, you're the right person. You should open with a blessing. So my heart starts racing, and I, I, I think to myself, who am I to do this? And when I started to go up, and I'm sitting there, and there is Congressman Lewis, who at 19 years old had his head bashed in on the Edmund Pettus Bridge for taking the risk of marching for civil rights and social justice. Here is a warrior with some of the other veterans of the civil rights movement who actually were there. And I thought to myself, who am I? And then I remembered the story. And I went to the microphone and I told the story, the same story I just told you. I introduced myself and I said, I'm Rabbi Jonah Pesner. I have the honor of directing the Religious Action Center. I told him the story about how the leadership conference of Kivi Kaplan and the leadership conference and how it was the reformed Jewish movement who had hosted the drafted the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. And I said, I don't stand here today alone. I stand here on the shoulders of Abraham Joshua Heschel, who famously marched with Dr. King. I stand here on the shoulders of Rabbi Maurice Eisendrath, who was famously photographed carrying a Sefer Torah with Dr. King at his side and Rabbi Everett Gendler, a reform rabbi, as they marched together. And I said, I stand here not for me alone. I stand here with Goodman and Cheney and Schwerner, who gave their lives marching Jews and blacks together to stand for civil rights. I stand here with the 13 reform rabbis who, when they got the call from Dr. King at a CCR convention, went down to St. Augustine, Florida, and were arrested and imprisoned with Dr. King. And I said, I don't stand here alone. I want to invite all of the Jewish leaders who are in this room to stand with me. And they came up. The Congress people, the senators, I'm standing there, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, Elliot Engel, Bernie Sanders. It was quite a scene. (laughs) Jan Schakowsky, but all of the Jews came up and stood with me. And they were so proud. And it wasn't just the members of Congress. Their staff, some folks who came up to stand with us as Jews who were of color. There were black Jews standing there. It was an incredible array. And I said to the crowd, We stand here today, having marched with you 50 years ago. But we didn't start marching 50 years ago. We are the people who 5,000 years ago marched out of Egypt, proving that Pharaoh could not oppress and could not destroy a people. And as God commanded us to welcome the stranger as we were strangers in Egypt, we have been marching for 5,000 years for justice. And we will march for 5,000 more years if that's what it takes. And we joined hands and we sang a Shechianu and there was not a dry eye in the house and we all went back to our seats and I breathed again. (laughs) A couple of interesting things that happened. One is as I'm coming off the dais and you know the sweat is now pouring down my face and I'm I'm starting to breathe again, this beautiful, coiffed, distinguished, grand lady in the front row sitting next to Lewis grabs my hand and says, Rabbi! And I looked at her and I said, yes, Speaker Pelosi. (laughs) She said, Rabbi, my granddaughter was Esther at Purim. (laughs) And then she said, do I count? (laughs) And I said, Speaker Pelosi, if you want to be with the Jewish people, we will take you. (laughs) Now, you know, this is a great uh, Arizona story, right? Do you know the story? Her daughter lives here, 
and sent their uh, children to, I guess it's called Pardes, is the Jewish day school. And so, and uh, is married to a Jewish man and they're raising their children as Jews. And right here, they belong here. Are they in the room? No. I, you know what, I, I've told this story a few times. I've never actually told it in the synagogue where the family belongs. I hope I'm getting it right. I mean, I hope whoever's friends with these people, tell them I love them and I'm grateful that they have such a great story. But what an incredible story. No Jews, no dogs. And 50 years later, later, the leader in the House of Representatives, one of the most prominent elected officials in American history, grabs a rabbi and says, do I count? And knows what Esther is and knows what Purim is. We have come a long way. And that night, I, I also, uh, as I was looking out at the crowd, one of the people in the room was... Uh, um, uh, David Goodman, Andrew Goodman's brother. People know the story of Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, right? Mississippi summer, two white Jews, one black leader together went down to register voters and were murdered brutally. Goodman's brother grabbed me and said, having come up and, and said the, the prayer with us, and I again felt so validated and celebrated by being in that moment of blessing, he said to me, Rabbi, I remember distinctly when my brother came home and asked my mother permission to go down to Mississippi summer. And she had to sign a permission slip for him. He was a boy. They were children. Think about the risks that they took. Think about how far we have come 50 years later. And this is the part of the speech tonight that gets agitational. Because we've come really, really far, and yet, friends, we have a problem. We have a number of problems. Even before this election, we had a very significant problem. So the Voting Rights Act, which was written in our reform movement's conference room, how many of you have heard of the court case called Shelby? How many of you have never heard of the Shelby court case? How many of you are afraid to raise your hands? <laughs> no one will get in trouble. Very important, wrongly decided, in my humble opinion, court case by the Supreme Court in 2012, the logic of which was that the Voting Rights Act protections were no longer necessary because things are better now. I'm oversimplifying the language of the decision, but that was the force of it. It eviscerated the key clause, which is Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, written in our Religious Action Center, which called for preclearance. Preclearance in about, I think it's 14 states. Someone could check my math and make sure I'm right. Including Arizona, were states that had a historic pattern of voter suppression in which those states would have to have any changes in their voting laws cleared by the Department of Justice. As soon as Shelby was decided, states across the country, particularly those 14, passed voter suppression laws, including Arizona, which led to the closing of polling places, which led to really long lines, which disproportionately impact low-income voters, disabled voters, undereducated voters, voters in isolated locations. We saw in this election the first presidential election since Shelby was eviscerated, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of votes that will never be counted because of voter suppression laws. We will never know how many people never even bothered to vote 
because the polling place was too far and they couldn't get enough time off of work or they had no transportation to get there. That is an unknowable number. So in all of the drama of the rigged election and the recount, what will never be known and be counted is the number of people who simply didn't vote because they couldn't. Our Voting Rights Act, which by the way, was passed by bipartisan majorities and was reauthorized throughout its history multiple times by bipartisan majorities and then re-signed into law by presidents whose names were not just Clinton, but also Bush and Reagan. Voting was never a partisan issue. So we have a problem. We are a movement of faith. We are the people of March for 5,000 years. And we will continue to march to ensure that every vote counts, whether it's a Republican vote or a Democratic vote or an independent vote. Because that's our job. And I'm proud to say that over the summer, tens of thousands of reformed Jewish leaders mobilized and organized across the US as part of our Nitzavim standing up campaign to do election protection work, to get voters to the polls and to do poll watching to make sure that every vote counted. So though many thousands of votes probably were never cast, we can at least know that we played some role in making sure that for those people whose votes might have been challenged or might not counted, actually counted. One parenthetical side note story, we had a rabbi, Rabbi Joel Mossbacker, who was part of our Nitzavim campaign, went to Ohio to do election protection work. He was standing at a poll, and his job was simply to just make sure that the poll workers knew that there was somebody watching, and if somebody was challenged for their vote, he had a hotline to the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and he could call a lawyer and just clarify the rule for the election worker. All nonpartisan. But what did he notice? It wasn't a Republican-Democrat thing he noticed. What he noticed was every single person whose vote was challenged and had a provisional ballot cast was black. In the day that he spent at the poll, not one white person, not one, had their vote challenged. Now, it could be coincidence. It could be. It could also be coincidence that one in three black men in America will go to jail and one in 17 white men will go to jail. I am not making this stuff up. If you are a black kid in America and you're a boy, you have a one in three shot of going to jail. But the sons who are in this room of white people have a one in 17 shot. There is something hopelessly broken about our criminal justice system and the way that is highly, highly racialized. We incarcerate in America 2.1 million people. That is the largest number in the world. Not per capita. It is the largest number in the world. Somehow, we have developed a system that is called by Michelle Alexander in her great book, The New Jim Crow. How many of you have read this book? I highly recommend you read The New Jim Crow as a next step off of this conversation. We don't have legalized segregation anymore. No Jews, no dogs, no blacks. We have de facto segregation because once you go to jail, what happens? You can't get a job, you can't vote, you can't provide, and so you get into a cycle of dependence and poverty. And by the way, the campaign to reform our criminal justice system, that is actually, we thought this year in Congress we had a shot at a bipartisan bill, which was a pretty decent bill that was gonna reduce mandatory minimums, and three strikes and you're out, particularly targeting uh, nonviolent drug offenders who clearly need intervention of medical care as opposed to incarceration. This bipartisan bill 
was being promoted by, of all people, a coalition led by the Koch brothers and the Center for American Progress. I had lunch two weeks ago. Again, you cannot make this stuff up. I had lunch two weeks ago with Grover Norquist. How many of you know who Grover Norquist is? Raise your, okay. Grover Norquist is the head of the American Taxpayers, uh, American Taxpayers Federation, ATF. I think it's ATF. They're the, behind the no tax pledge, trying to get elected officials to commit to never raise taxes. They are very, very um, uh, uh, opposed to any growth in government or government spending. That's there, and I'm not making a value judgment, I'm just stating a fact. They understand, and I had lunch with Grover to talk about this, the prison system as one of the greatest waste of taxpayer dollars in American history. It costs a lot, and it does damage to society. And particularly if you are a free market person and a free enterprise person and an empowerment person, you don't want to keep people locked down in a way that they can't then be productive citizens and generate for the economy. You want them to have the freedom to actually have economic opportunity. So God bless the unlikely bedfellows of the American Taxpayer Federation and the Koch brothers, along with the Center for American Progress, which is like the liberal think tank folks, together working on criminal justice reform, which takes me back to Saperstein's learning. Real change, the real struggle for civil rights and social justice in America has to happen through bipartisan compromise. And then the election happened. And so we have a bigger problem. Because the problem that we face is a problem in which we have now learned that the systemic racism that we were aware of before, one in three black men go to jail, one in six Latino men go to jail, one in 17 white men go to jail, those kind of patterns of systemic racism are linked to a cultural racism that this election gave license to or unleashed, depending on your perspective. And I just want to say, as a person for whom the social justice imperative of doing our job and seeing ourselves as we ourselves were slaves in Egypt and understanding the other, right? Remember, the number one most repeated mitzvah in our Torah is you are strangers in Egypt, therefore you should love the stranger. It's the Torah's constant reminder that because we suffered, we remember the suffering of others. So as Jews, we have to think about what it means for the Latino man who is incarcerated, the African-American person who's incarcerated. And yet, what this election reminded us, it's not just about them. The anti-Semitism that has been unleashed, what is called the alt-right, let's not say alt-right, let's say neo-Nazi. My grandma Fanny, when she was 16 years old, got herself on a boat from Russia to the Lower East Side to escape the pogroms of Europe. She knew what bigotry and anti-Jewish hate looked like. When I was a little kid, I used to ask her, because I was fascinated by the Cold War, Grandma, are you Russian? And she would say in her thick accent, no, I'm not Russian, I'm Jewish. And I would say, well, do you speak Russian? She didn't speak Russian. I said, why don't you speak Russian? You grew up in Russia. She said, no, I speak Jewish, which was Yiddish. And I would say, well, why aren't you Russian? And one day she said to me, because Jonah, when I was a little girl, my, gra my father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, had to dig a hole under the floorboards of our house so that I would have a hiding place, so that when the Cossacks would come through to rape the girls and kidnap the boys, I would have a place to hide. And she said, I remember once watching through the floorboards of my house in horror as the rabbi of my town had his beard tied behind a horse and was dragged to his death. 
I stopped asking my grandma Fanny why she wasn't Russian. I tell that story because my grandma Fanny came to America for a reason. The Statue of Liberty meant something to her. The journey for her to the Lower East Side of Kivy Kaplan to No Jews, No Dogs is a journey that has been fraught with challenge and fear. We have fought for the America that is America, the one place in human history where Jews are humans, like everybody else. That is now at risk. CNN actually had a Chiron when doing a report on the alt-right, the neo-Nazis, and it said, are Jews people? Because they were having a both sides of the issue conversation with someone from the alt-right and their position, the neo-Nazis, the Jews aren't people. This normalizes something that shocks the conscience and that we as Jews ought to be outraged about and make us double down on our outrage at the bigotry, the Islamophobia, and the misogyny that has been unleashed through this campaign. When we have our Muslim brothers and sisters who came to America for the same darn reason my grandma Fanny came here, for economic opportunity and to be free, women who are having their hijabs pulled off, people who are being bullied, we're seeing graffiti with swastikas and anti-Muslim rhetoric in the same breath, we have to be as concerned about their health and their well-being as we are concerned about our own. When we know that people whose phenotypical characteristics, i.e. what they look like, brown people, black people, refugee people, immigrant people, people whose names sound funny, are being teased and taunted in schools, we have to be outraged. And frankly, I'm the father of four daughters. When our daughters ask us, is it safe? Has sexual assault now become normalized? Is the touching and groping of women permissible? We have to be concerned. And we have to ask ourselves what role we will play in a strictly nonpartisan way, but in a deeply values-oriented way as people of faith to say we will restore America to be a country of civility and dignity for all of humanity. We will create safe spaces in our congregation for our own folks, and we'll reach across lines of difference into different neighborhoods and different communities to stand in solidarity with and reweave the fabric of the American society that my grandma Fanny came here for and that Kavit Kaplan fought for. This is the civil rights moment of our day and the challenge that is for our work. One last reflection on this, and then I will, I will stop ranting at you. And I'll listen to you and have conversation. I love to tell the story about how the Voting Rights Act was written in our conference room because it inspires me so, and I think it reminds us of who we are. But the best time that I ever told the story, I want to share with you. We were down in Durham, North Carolina. We'd gone down there, a whole bunch of leadership of the reform movement, to do election protection work. We were invited down by Reverend William Barber, who is the head of the NAACP in, uh, uh, in uh, North Carolina. He's an African-American pastor of a church in Greensboro, uh, and he, uh, the head of the Moral Mondays movement. If you want to be inspired, Google him, watch him on YouTube. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing speaker. And uh, one smart thing I do is I speak before him. He's the kind of guy you don't want to speak after. So I gave my speech. I did the usual, you know, the Voting Rights Act was written in our conference room. It was eviscerated by Shelby. We've got to get organized, blah, blah, blah. Everybody loved it. And then he came up to the podium. And he said in his big way, now Rabbi Pessner, 
Can I, can I do it? Hit the, will you give me permission to cut it? Because it's so fun. Rabbi Pesner, I want to issue a correction, a Talmudic emendation, if you will. <laughs> he knows his Talmud. He knows that you know, in the Talmud you get an argument, but then you get an alternative argument, right? She says, I want to issue a Talmudic emendation, if you will. He said, the Voting Rights Act was not written in your conference room. It was written in blood in Selma and transcribed in your conference room. He was reminding me of the risk that Goodman and Cheney and Schwerner took to fight for what they cared most deeply about. And that day I sat there and thought, for what would I take risk? What thing matters so much to me, to my daughters, to my reformed Jewish movement, to my community, to my country, that I would be willing to take risk? And I think that's the question that I reflect now to the group. And I'm happy to talk about any number of issues of social justice that we work on that I didn't talk about, LGBT equality, and some of the things that we're gonna have to do around that, uh, protecting women's reproductive health, uh, immigration reform. I wanna congratulate, by the way, the great state of Arizona. You did pass in this election a minimum wage ordinance that everybody in the country should be proud of to $12 an hour, which is not the fight for 15, but it's much better than $8 an hour, right? People know about this? And uh, you have made a change in law enforcement in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say that every time I've had conversation over the 10 years that I've been a national leader coming to grassroots, I've talked to uh, mostly Catholic activists in Arizona, Joe Rubio and some of the Roman Catholic priests and nuns that have done activism, immigrant communities, Latino Catholic communities. Over the 10 years when I've asked them, what, are the th what is the single biggest thing you're up against? It was that law enforcement uh, professional and the way in which policing happened. And they worked for decades to make a change. So it is proof that one can organize and stand up to bigotry and to hate, and you can take your state back. So congratulations, Arizona, for taking some steps forward. So let's, oh, we're gonna open it up. Yeah, so, so the, um, uh, yes, we're gonna open it up to questions and would, uh, would ask um, that you um, ask a question as concisely as possible. Uh, appreciate your views, but uh, uh, would prefer that it just be in the form of a, uh, of a question, if I <laughs> You don't want sermons, Rabbi? <laughs> and, and, if, and if you could um, introduce yourself, and, uh, and I think we'll try to make sure every, everybody's heard. So your question. It's a great question, and let me, let me take, thank you for the question, and let me take the opportunity to be crystal clear 
um, about President-elect Trump and where the reform movement stands uh, on his election. Um, we work with Republicans and Democrats. We worked closely with uh, President Bush on a range of issues, including global AIDS, um, international religious freedom, which is one of the reasons why David is in the position that he's in, uh, human trafficking. And we will work with President-elect Trump when there are areas where we can come together. And we already had heard from the campaign about a desire to work with them on issues. That is separate, and I wanna say separately, that's from a national level what we do with our elected officials, wherever they come from. And we can never assume anything about who voted for who and why. I've talked to many Jews who voted for President-elect Trump, and I take them at their word that they have good, deeply held beliefs that led them to make the decision that they made in good conscience, whether it was their beliefs about Israel, or it was beliefs about immigration and the way they see immigration, or whatever their decision-making was. So I wanna be clear, at least from my perspective, you should have your own perspective. Everybody in this room gets to have their own perspective. I get the microphone, so I get to have it right now. My own perspective is, I won't cast aspersions on someone because they voted for somebody and assume that because there has been bigotry and hate associated with this candidate, that then someone who voted for him is a bigot or has hate. And I've been crystal clear because we came out very quickly with a statement condemning the appointment of Bannon. And we never said he was an anti-Semite because I, I keep getting called. How can you say he was an anti-Semite? We don't, and I say, I have no idea if he is or not. I don't want to know. I don't know this man. I have no idea what's in his heart. I know the online platform that he built and I know the actual uh, articles and neo-Nazi discussion groups that happened under his watch. I know the bigotry that uh, got fomented through the campaign that he ran. That's what we're condemning and reacting to and don't think he's then a responsible appointment to be sitting next to the person in the White House. So my, then my answer to the question about how you have this conversation, first of all, we need to be ready to listen as much as we talk. So I know we're all eager to go to the person, whether we're a Trump voter or, or a Clinton voter or whoever, to go to the person and say, how could you have done that? Don't you know that? Bop, 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 bop. The first posture has to be genuine curiosity. I'd like to understand the choice that you made and why and be open to the learning that will happen as a result of that choice. And then, if there's really questions about like, okay, forget about our policy differences, forget about Republican, Democrat, let's be concerned about the anti-Semitism, just look on the websites. I mean, it's just right there. It's how, look at my Twitter feed. Because as soon as I went public on Bannon, and I was glad because then I could actually show people and say, see, I came out, and it, by the way, at one point, Rick Jacobs, who is my wonderful colleague, is the president of the ORJ, when we were developing our position, often when I, someone, often the press needs a name, right? So when I speak, I don't speak on my own behalf. I speak on behalf of 900 congregations, 2 million Reformed Jews, and 2,000 rabbis. That's my base. I'm not, it's not about me. It's about that body politic. But it needs a name. So Rabbi Jonah Pesner, speaking for the Reform Movement, said X, Y, and Z. Rick came to me and said, listen, you're going to go out there about Bannon, and you're going to get flamed in social media. Do you want me to take the hit? This is the kind of conversation we have to have now. And did you just read the Jewish uh, uh, journalists? My stuff that I got was fine. Like, I'm not even afraid my daughters will see it. It's, it's fine. It's within, like, the Jewish journalists. Be concerned. And just show, just, so I would say when, when, when you've been in a thoughtful conversation, you're listening as much as talking, then I think it's reasonable to say, well, let's just look at what these Jewish journalists are up against if you, if you doubt it. Okay. Next question. 
Hi, Mike. Just to reiterate one of your points, in 1970, driving from New York to Georgia to report for military service, crossing North Carolina, there was a great big sign on the highway, Jews, blacks, not welcome. 1970, yeah. It's a great question, Mark, and thank you for that. Um, and uh, there's a bunch to say about that. Um, if you asked, first of all, one thing that is different now from 1965 that we should acknowledge, 10% of Jews are now of color. 10% of Jews are of color. In the broadest sense of color, meaning black, Latino, Asian, we are not a white people anymore. And so we're not now, and I don't know your congregation or these congregations well enough to know, and I don't know the demographics of Arizona, but I walk into religious school classrooms all over America and I see black faces, Chinese faces, Korean faces, Latino faces. And by the way, it's like adoption, conversion, intermarriage, Jews by choice. You don't even know. There's so many stories. So we should just be really sensitive that that's... We're, we're, I had actually... Uh, so that's one thing. The not reciprocating part, you have to think about it from a, the perspective of an African-American. An African-American person who's not Jewish, who's Christian, looks at the Jewish community and sees certain communities and says, well, the Jews are not with us. We say, well, wait a minute, we marched with Dr. King. They would say the same thing because it's a big community. The Jewish community is very diverse. Some Reformed Jews marched with Dr. King. Plenty of Jews didn't. So I, I wouldn't... I, I, you know, and then there's kind of like who gets the microphone. So when Minister Farrakhan gets the microphone, he's a bigot. He's anti-Semitic, and he says such things. And Jesse Jackson, when he was on mic and didn't know he was on mic, my formative political memory, by the way, was Town. I grew up in New York. Uh, it was one of my first politi political campaigns was, was, that, was that campaign. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. The number one most important thing is we do this work because it's the right thing to do. We don't do it because we want black folk or Latino folk or Muslim folk to reciprocate. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And... As a corollary thing, by investing in those communities, then hopefully there is reciprocity and sharing and caring about one another. Most African-American folk who uh, I have had conversation with around this kind of issue, their experience, they would say, I don't distinguish between Jews and other whites. In their lived experience, they could have some landlord who could be Jewish or not Jewish but is white and is not behaving well, and that's what they're reacting to. My stories are the stories of the elites. So if I go to Congress, the Congressional Black Caucus, they're with us. They support Israel. They support the Jewish community because the Congressional Black Caucus, who is a group of elites. But if you're asking kind of what happens at the grassroots level at the base, let me pay it forward to today. Very painful moment this year when the Movement for Black Lives came out with its platform. 
and it contained language that was incendiary, disgraceful around Israel. And a lot of people have, well, so our reaction to that was, A, number one, first of all, the movement for black lives, it's not an organization. It's like, you know, tens of thousands of activists across the country who hardly even talk to each other, know each other. Many of the movement leaders, people doing the work, hadn't even read the platform, didn't know it was in there. Second, unfortunately, for better or for worse, when Ferguson erupted and these young black activists were out there marching for their lives, they were tweeting with Palestinian activists. And the Palestinian activists were tweeting with them in solidarity and saying, we're up against a militarized police force just like you are. Here are some tips about how to navigate that. Palestinian activists showed up and were with them. So from the experience of young Black Lives Matter activists, the Jews are not at the table. That's just a painful reality. When I had a, convened a meeting of about 25 black Jews, young black Jews, to talk about this issue, they had a very different perspective than you or I have right now. They said, Israel, it's fine, I care about Israel, but I worry every day that I will get pulled over by law enforcement and have my head bashed in. And why aren't you worried about me? I am your child. It's very agitational. My bottom line is we have a lot of work to do. We're gonna do the racial justice work because it's the right thing to do. We're gonna do it because we gotta get into a relationship across lines. People will only care about us if, and it can't just be at the top. How's the relationship to the African-American church across town? How are you doing with that? Is it, I mean, is it deep and vibrant? Most reformed synagogues no longer have the, maybe, the, maybe there's a pulpit exchange where the, the pastor comes and gives a sermon, but until you have hundreds of members of reformed synagogues having Shabbat dinner with hundreds of members of black churches, there's not gonna be that kind of relationship and there won't be that mutual caring. Hi, Stu. You described the environment uh, very, very well. Uh, what would you tell this audience and what you tell other audiences uh, in terms of how to actionalize their advocacy and their activism? Great. Uh, we are going to need you more than ever because it's going to become very state and local. The things that we care about in Washington are not going to move in the way that they were going to move. We're going to be playing defense on a lot of things that we care about. So for, uh, you know, for example, um, state by state, there's gonna be fights over LGBT equality and religious liberty, so-called religious liberty, which is using religious freedom as a way to discriminate. We're gonna have to, state by state, fight these kind of statewide initiatives. Um, or when it comes to things like anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, really doing that baseline mosque to synagogue, dialogues, activism, standing in solidarity, working with school districts to create safe zones for um, you know, minorities, for LGBT folks. Um, you know, that would be, I, so you know, you're gonna have to, have to kind of figure out, here's a big one that's gonna be coming, okay? Um, we don't know what this president will do and we don't know what Congress will do. So we, we have to wait and be rational. But if there were uh, you know, deportations, Congregations would have to decide, do we want to become sanctuaries? There's already a movement in the Christian community, all of the 70s and the Central American refugees, to create sanctuaries. You know, we, we'll see what happens with DACA and DAPA, um, which were already, you know, we, and I'm not, I, this is a, when I spoke to people in the campaign about the rhetoric, you know, that we're going to deport, you know, send, Mexicans are rapists, or we're going to, you know, and I said, How, this is incendiary language. The, the, the campaign official said to me, well, Rabbi, don't you understand that um, Mr. Trump 
says these things, and then, we, and then we're start talking about issues that we wouldn't have talked about otherwise. In other words, the rationale was, nobody was talking about immigration reform, now we're talking about immigration reform. And I said, I understand that, but the damage that gets done in the process is really dangerous. From their perspective, it's a way to change the conversation. Whether he'll really do deportations, I'm not sure. But it could be that the dreamers, who are children, who have grown up in America, who've never lived anywhere else, some of whom don't speak Spanish, are gonna be you know, deported. So then you have a, then you, you know, some of the folks may be the men and women who clean this building or cut our lawns. Like, it will be a, a conversation that you'll have to have. So it'll be the, and the reform movement is gonna help. There's actually, we're gonna be sending out a, um, a, a communication on Friday, which is here are some of the ways that we're thinking about we're gonna need to kind of organize in nonpartisan ways to protect our values and the things that we care about. And over the next few months, we'll continue to kind of communicate. An area that's complicated is nominations, right? So the reform movement is very cautious about getting into the nominations game. Um, because we're nonpartisan and we don't wanna, you know, on the other hand, we're, we've, we already expressed our concern about Senator Sessions, who was nominated to be the chief civil rights officer in the country, who is against a lot of civil rights things that we care about. Um, but we're not opposing the nomination. We are inviting, and you, if you check the website, you can see the hard questions that we want the Senate to ask Senator Sessions um, so that he can be challenged around the things that we're worried about. Then if he doesn't answer in a satisfactory way, we could make a movement decision to oppose the nomination. That's when we'll need senators like Flake and McCain. And you're well positioned, actually. If uh, there are issues that come to the Senate, it will take senators like Flake who have dem and McCain, both who demonstrated a willingness to stand up to this president-elect on, uh, president on certain things, will need right-thinking, values-based Republican senators and congressmen to be a check. And by the way, there'll be times when we turn to the Trump administration to be a check on the excesses of Congress. You know, it's, it's, it's gonna be a bizarre time, but keep thinking state and local. You can actually have an impact here. So hello, Rabbi, Alan Teichick. Hi, Alan. Great, Great to see pleasure you. Pleasure to have you here. Thanks. So what's been clear, you mentioned this earlier, is that this campaign let the cork out of the bottle and we are seeing anti-Semitism, xenophobia, misogyny, that clearly was there, or much of it was there, but right. was repressed. So my question is, is it better for civil <laughs> rights leaders such as yourself for it to be out in the open yeah. as opposed to maybe continuing along repressed and maybe pop out in an even more dangerous way? It's a great question. People heard the question, I think it's, and I don't have a monopoly on the answer. I'd be curious other people's take. Here's the danger. What we don't know is whether in every society there is bigotry, misogyny, and hate that needs to be repressed. It will be, always be there, and part of society is saying it's not acceptable, and that this election gave permission. Versus, no, now it's out in the open. I lean towards the first position, which is that it's there, and we need to repress it aggressively. Right? I mean, I feel bad for educators. Classroom teachers have been spending their careers trying to educate against this stuff, and in one six-month period, it's kind of all out there. And we're hearing reports, I don't know if you're hearing from your own kids, of kids walking down the halls in schools and hearing, you know, like, oh, we're going to send you back where you came from or, you know, make America white again. I don't hold President-elect Trump responsible for that act, but it's problematic when people are using that phrase in order to bully and to degrade based on race and ethnicity. It was not acceptable in America a year ago to say such things. So I think it probably was a good thing that it was repressed. That's my take, but... Can you uh, explain 
this is something that our, our <coughs> college children are head to head with, and it's very, um, it's gone from the outskirts to a very mainstream, very yep. organized, it's awful, very anti-Semitic, anti-Israel yep. movement at, in center stage. Yep. It is real. Does everybody understand the question, right? So if you have any kids, I have a college freshman. I see it firsthand. I went down to Brown University, which is kind of one of the hotbeds of this stuff, at the invitation of the Reformed Jewish students. They just needed support. And what's, what's so hard for our kids, our kids are Zionists because they grew up in the Reform movement, which is a Zionist movement, but they're also progressive. So they care about the treatment of Palestinians. They want a two-state solution. So they feel trapped between the crazies on the left we're like, no, 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 one-state solution. BDS, by the way, just to be really clear, BDS is a one-state solution. Because if you delegitimize Israel, it goes out of business, and you're left with no Jewish state anymore. So people, and I, I've challenged, like, Jewish Voice for Peace, which is the, the Jewish front group for BDS. I talked to the head of their Washington office, and I said, I want to understand for you, what is your intended outcome? Like, I know what I'm for. I'm for a two-state solution. There is a vibrant, dynamic Israel living in security and peace and a Palestinian state living happily next door, not a threat to Israel. So what are you for? And he said, oh, I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. He said, I'm not concerned about that. Right now, I'm concerned about the injustice being perpetrated against the Palestinians. I said, well, you darn well better be concerned about it because there won't be a Jewish state. I said, wait, so your position is morally reprehensible and irresponsible. And, that's, and this is a Jew. So you can imagine that the, those who are either anti-Semitic or just delegitimizing Israel. So the question, how do we, so let me lead with the challenge and then the opportunity. Well, I've already led challenge. Here's the doubling the challenge. We have no infrastructure on campus. Though we have nifty regions and nifty chapters in every synagogue in America, once kids get to college, we just don't have a there there. They're kind of left deciding between Hillel, some of which are terrific and are doing a great job, or nothing. So we are looking now, the one thing that has filled the gap, interestingly enough, regardless of what your politics are in Israel, the one beachhead in this is actually J Street U. Because J Street U, as an entity that is a Zionist organization that is for a two-state solution, becomes a place where Jewish, and they're mostly our kids, a lot of our kids who grow up caring about social justice, they went to Nifty in Israel, they land on campus, and J Street U kind of scoops them up. They can say to the BDS people, we are also for a two-state solution. We are also for justice for Palestinians, but we are for Israel. So they have a credibility that like the APAC activists don't have. I mean, the BDS people, they won't talk to APAC activists. There's no way. Or the kind of Israel defense types. What we're trying to do with Iraq is figure out, lacking in infrastructure on campus, how can we train our high school students and then support them with college through convenings and retreats and gatherings to be equipped with the language and the talking points and the skills to stand up to the BDS activists who are brutal on campus. I wish I had a better answer for you. You know, if somebody gave me a $10 million grant and I could hire 30 really talented professionals to be on the 30 most populated Jewish campuses, that's what I would do. And they would be living there with those folks. So far, we have not been able to develop the infrastructure to do it. But you raise a, a great question. I, you don't know I do know you, right? But introduce yourself to the group. I, I, Eva's a rock star for those of you that have not uh, been to her concerts. <laughs> so, um, I'm the only Reformed Jew on my university campus, which is crazy because I go to American Jewish University. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so, after the death threats came forward in Israel towards Reformed leaders, I was the only one that was stopped. And I had even my roommate who's from Israel was like, oh, I thought this probably 
Yeah. We were once the stranger in Israel, so we yeah. should be treating each other in this. Do people know about what Eva's referencing? So last week there was a reform synagogue in, uh, was it Ranana? I think that was defaced with bigoted graffiti against Reform Judaism, and there were knives left that had the names of Rabbi Gilad Kariv, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, and Anand Hoffman with, as a death threat. And by the way, I lived in Israel in 1995, and I remember the signs that were held up of Yitzhak Rabin as a traitor, and they showed him in full Hitler Nazi regalia, and the incitement, we worried, and then he was murdered. So we shouldn't be naive that when people incite violence, violence often happens. And it goes back to the BDS point. We are really squeezed because on the one hand, we're Zionist and we're pro-Israel. On the other hand, we as Reformed Jews are not even legitimated there. So it puts us in a really uncomfortable position. Um, our Orthodox colleagues in America condemned it, which is a good thing. The Orthodox Union actually came out condemning it, which is helpful. Um, and uh, it's going to be a long-term fight. It's just hard. And by the way, back to the BDS point, the, the, another unintended consequence or challenge of the Trump presidency is what's going to get conflated is all of these issues, um, you know, immigration reform and racial justice and healthcare access and LGBT equality and an Israel agenda. And it's going to get conflated. It's going to be very hard for people to hear us say, we're for racial justice, we're for all these things, and we're for Israel, but in a nuanced way where we're for peace and justice in Israel. It's going to be very hard to have that nuanced conversation with people. Yeah, I want to pick up on that. I'll just go in fairness. Hi, everyone. Um, I want to pick up on this issue of the relationship within Jewish communities between places like the JCU, Iraq, uh, and some of the Jewish communities that really demonize. Uh, there was a recent article in the uh, Jewish News, the Kenyan Jewish News, which was basically calling JCU traitors. Oh, it's really awful. It's really awful. Well, one thing that can be done is Rabbi Hillel famously said, you know, in a place that there is no ish, be an ish, meaning, you know, where there are people acting incivilly and unhumanly, be human. We have got to model the values that we believe in. So speak with nuance, speak with thoughtfulness. You know, people have critique, legitimate critique of APAC and J Street. I'm proud, by the way, we're the reform movement. We have a lot of APAC activists and we have a lot of J Street activists. Our work on the Iran deal, I thought was stellar, stellar. APAC and J Street both had their talking points and their reactions written before the Iran deal was even read by anybody. The reform movement went through a really rigorous process where we had Israeli security officials, administration officials, members of Congress, um, foreign policy experts, meet with a range of reformed Jewish leaders. Work, we actually read the deal. I don't know how many of you actually read the deal. It's 180 pages. It's hard, but you have to actually read it before you have an opinion about it. And then we came up with a very thoughtful and nuanced position on the deal, which wasn't good deal, bad deal, this, that, which is what all of these groups are trying to do, is J Street this, APAC that, Iran deal this, Iran deal that, right? We said, it's a problematic deal, and it needs to be a better deal, and here's ways that we think we can do that. So in terms of J Street U, here's where I get like ballistic. APAC, J Street, people demonize both sides, fine. It's a proxy fight for other things. I get why Bannon became a proxy fight and now Keith Ellison 
you know, it's like, well, if you're against Bannon, aren't you against Ellison? It's like saying, if you don't like apples, why don't you like oranges? Okay, and yes, Ellison, in the spirit of Mark's comment earlier, has said problematic things about Israel. That doesn't mean he's an anti-Semite, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't work with him. They want to make him the chair of their party. It's not my party, it's their party. We're the reform movement. Be that as it may, where I go ballistic is J Street U. These are our kids. These are our kids who show up on campus, they love Israel, but they also love their values of social justice and they are struggling to find a way to make sense of that. We gotta get behind them and support them. And the, the, those Jewish communal leaders who have refused to engage in J Street U, I said, what, you don't love our children? They can, you can ban J Street, that's fine. You wanna vilify them. I think it's inane, but that's fine. You can vilify APAC all you want to. Don't vilify our children. Well, first of all, you can do whatever you want. Um, it would be disingenuous for me not to acknowledge that our, our positions of the reform movement tend to line up with one party and tend to be in tension with another party. It's all, that, that is a fact. Right, no, that is a fact, um, which is why we work so hard. Actually, one of my asks to the rabbis I've been working with, and I'll ask to all of you, is we don't have a good relationship yet with Senators Flake or McCain. We want one, and if anybody in this room has, you know, like a Republican Party activist friend or, a, or one of you as a major donor, introduce us to McCain and Flake because we really work very hard to be in right relationship and find areas to work together. Um, I'm telling you what we can do as an organized faith community. If you believe it's a partisan thing and you want to get partisan, that's your choice. On either side, by the way. You're not satisfied, and I don't think you're going to be. People are ready for dessert, I think. So, so I uh, want, want to say a thank and um, uh, appropriate in this moment in this sanctuary to, uh, to give Rabbi Pesner uh, um, our thanks with a round of applause. <laughs>